Let's turn now to the word of the Lord, to the Gospel of John. We continue in what is a continuation of that passage that Pete dealt with last week on the Good Shepherd. This is the seventh and the last discourse of Jesus that is recorded by John, and we're now at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. John has talked about the Sabbath, he's talked about the Passover, things have occurred, several events have occurred uh, in the life of Christ that took place in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, and now we come to another celebration. It is the Feast of Dedication. It said the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was appropriate that it would take place in Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. Literally, the word means to renew. It's what the word Hanukkah means. It means to renew. And it's a renewal that they celebrate. But it was not something that happened in the Old Testament, like tabernacles and Passover and all of those other events. This was something that happened during the intertestamental period, that is, between Malachi and Matthew. That approximately 400 years between the resettlement back in the land from the Babylonian captivity and the days of Christ. What had happened was Alexander the Great's empire had broken up into four parts. And one part was given to an awful, nasty dynasty in Syria, the Saludian dynasty. And the most vicious of all of the kings of that dynasty was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, the Antiochs that you see in the, in the uh, ancient world were named after Antiochus the cities of Antioch, the capital of Syria, of the Roman province of Syria many years later. But in this day, around 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes had moved into Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem and Judea and desecrated the temple, the temple that Haggai and Zechariah had rebuilt, the temple that had been dedicated and restored. They desecrated it. They didn't tear it down. They just, they just fouled it, and they fouled it by putting up an altar to Zeus, a pagan altar in the middle of the temple area. They, they cleaned out all of the golden furniture and all the valuables. That were there. They burned all the gates that had been put up in the large temple area. And they had also offered a sow, 
a pig on the altar of the Most High God. Can you imagine more of a desecration than that? But this infuriated the Jews so much that a family of the priestly family arose, the Hasmanian dynasty, and under Judas Maccabees, they waged war and they drove out the Syrians. And in three years later, they cleansed the Syrians out of Jerusalem and pushed them back and enjoyed what Israel would have or Judah would have at that time as a a large uh, period of time of independence. In fact, it was the best days that Jerusalem had following the Babylonian captivity and before the days of Jesus. And under the rule of the Hasmanian dynasty, the Maccabees, they enjoyed freedom. And one of the things that they did first was they dedicated or rededicated and renewed the whole temple area. The temple had been dedicated in the days of Solomon. The days that the temple had been dedicated in the days of Haggai when it was rebuilt. Now it was cleansed and renewed, not just rededicated, but renewed. And that was celebrated by God's people with an eight-day festival in the winter time. It's interesting how John says it was winter. That's all he says. Now that gives us a hint to make sure we have the right festival in mind and not the festival two and a half months earlier, which was tabernacles, which is what we've seen in the previous chapter. So he makes a, a, a time differentiation. But I also think that there's something chilling about the word winter. Just like when Nicodemus came to Jesus and it was night, it told you something about Nicodemus' heart, the blindness and the darkness of his heart at the time. This tells us something about Israel. This was a a cold time in Israel. And because of that, it says here that Jesus was in the colonnade or the portico of the porch of Solomon. One of the things that they had done when they rebuilt the temple is they had rebuilt this large area. Now, when Herod came along in the middle of the first century B.C. and completely rebuilt the temple and made a magnificent structure out of it, one of the things that he had done is he had restored this huge area that many believe was the site or the spot of the original temple. And it was on a great porch that was named after Solomon. And it faced the eastern side. And what was interesting about it is it was roofed and it was columned, but it also had walls on the exterior so that the open side of the court faced in toward the new temple, the rebuilt temple. This was a very important spot in the life of the church. If you read the book of Acts and the early chapters of Acts, this is where the church met. This is probably where Pentecost occurred, was in this porch of Solomon. And apparently Jesus had really sanctified the place by numerous occasions of him teaching. This was where they held some of the classes. It was a huge gathering area. And so it says here that the Jews gathered around Jesus. Now that sounds warm and tender, doesn't it? They gathered around. Actually, they surrounded him. Because if you remember where you left off last week, they were about ready to kill him again. This was a hostile time. This was winter. This was chilling. This was cold. This is, come, this is the last time that Jesus is going to strive with them in helping them understand who he is. And they surrounded him and they demanded to know of him, asking the same questions, by the way, that Pilate would ask later at Jesus' trial. Are you really the Christ, the Messiah? And if so, tell us plainly. And Jesus says what he always said. He said, I have told you. I have told you by sign after sign after sign. I have told you by example 
I have told you by precept. In fact, it says here he used a figure of speech. The word is the general word for figure of speech. Actually, it's the translation of the Old Testament word mashal. It means an allegory or a proverb, or it can mean a metaphor or a simile. It's a very broad term. And Jesus said, I've told you every which way from Sunday about myself. And moreover, the important thing is that I have insisted that I've come from the Father, that I am the Son of the Father. He has sent me, and I do His works, and I do His will, and the works that I do are testimony without question as to who I am and what I am doing. And that's the way Jesus replies to him. He says, the works that I do tell you unmistakably who I am. It's interesting that in a close look at the teaching of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we'll see that over and over that Jesus will reveal enough of himself to elicit faith. He turned the water to wine, they believed. He fed the 5,000, they believed. He revealed enough of himself that faith was possible. But also in his parables and in his life and in his responses, he concealed enough of himself that faith was necessary. It takes faith. Walking by faith, not by sight. And Jesus says that it is the teaching and the preaching, the seeing with the eye of the signs and the hearing of the ear. And Jesus finally tells them, and I think that it was probably a very chilly day, in terms of temperature, when Jesus pronounced these very chilling words, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Mm. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Faith is a gift of God. The hearing and believing ear the hearing ear, the believing heart, comes because God opens the ear and vivifies, quickens, makes alive the heart. Yeah, even more than that, takes out a stony heart, it puts in a heart of flesh, a living, beating, vital heart. This operation apparently had not taken place in the lives of these critics, these Jerusalem and Judean authorities and others who were pressing Jesus, threatening Jesus, waiting for some word that they could use in a trial to convict him of blasphemy or treason and have him crucified. And Jesus says, you don't believe because you're really not my sheep. He's already told them in the previous discourse or portion of the discourse that he is the good shepherd, literally the model shepherd, the handsome shepherd, 
Remember, shepherd was a big model in the Old Testament. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And David is always seen as the ideal shepherd. And one of the things it says about David when he was first called to his ministry, that he was comely. He was handsome. He was attractive. And Jesus is that shepherd. He says, I am the true vine. He says, I am the genuine article in so many other ways. But in this particular figure of speech, he speaks of himself as the model. And all the things he says about the model shepherd, which you saw last week, the most important thing that is emphasized and thrice mentioned in the previous few verses, that the model shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, the good shepherd, the ideal shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. Didn't say he risks his life for the sheep. David risked his life. You remember in his shepherding duties, he killed a lion, he killed a bear, he defended the sheep. Doesn't say that Jesus merely risks his life, but he says he lays his life down. He gives it over. He hands it over. And this is what Jesus does for his sheep. And so he talks about his sheep briefly. He says, my sheep, you're not my sheep, he says apparently. You're not. Because my sheep hear my voice. Have you this morning realized that you have heard the voice of the shepherd, the call, the summons to come unto him for eternal life, to believe in him, to trust in him. His sheep do that. They hear his voice. They follow him. He knows them. They know him. He gives them eternal life, the very life that he laid down as a substitute for the sins of his sheep. Now, he laid down his life, he says, he had power and authority to raise it again. The death and resurrection of Christ are kind of two sides of the same coin. The death of Christ accomplishes everything that was needed to nail the old curse to the cross, to satisfy every righteous demand of the law, to fulfill every stipulation that was put upon mankind. The resurrection of Christ was to bring the gift of eternal life, which was the reward for obedience. And Christ has come to give that to his people to bear the curse, and to bring the blessing. And so that's what he tells these who are pushing in upon him. These are the benefits of being my sheep. I give them life and they shall never, ever, it's a double negative in the original, they shall never, ever, ever perish. And the reason they shall never, ever perish is because I have them in my grip. And it is a powerful grip. We just 
prayed about it in our prayer a few moments ago. An omnipotent, all-powerful grip. And if that's not enough, my Father in Jesus never separates His work from the Father's work, His will from the Father's will, His power from the Father's will. He even emphasizes, I and my Father are one. It's neuter here. It means we're one in will, one in power, one in aim, one in goal, one in heart, one in soul. We're two separate distinct personalities because it's I and the Father are two distinct persons, but in every sense, one in essence and one in specifically in power. And in the grip of Christ, his sheep find another benefit. The Father who's greater and has given them all has his hand gripping the sons. There's where we are. His sheep, his sheep of his pasture. You've heard his voice. He knows us. He's drawn us to himself. He's given us eternal life. We will never perish. Never be lost again. No one can pluck or snatch. The word is a very violent word. No robber, Satan himself. No cloud of doubt. No storm of confusion and dismay. Even when we don't feel in his grip, his grip never slackens. And the Father holds him him and us in that grip. We're his. He's ours. Safe. Secure. For all eternity.